Our text this morning is Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. And let's read um, let's read from verse 1 for context. Romans 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. This is the word of the Lord. Let all who have ears to hear, hear. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Father, this morning again, we commit this time to you. This is your word. We are your slaves. Father, we are your children whom you love. And we love you because you first loved us. And you are opening our understanding more and more to see the glory of our God. I pray that you would do that this morning, Lord. Meet with us and reveal your glory to us that we would worship you rightly in spirit and in truth all our days. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, we're working our way through Romans chapter 7 in what has been, I would say, a wonderfully fruitful study. Um, this chapter has been a little bit of a departure from uh, the previous chapter, chapter 6, uh, really in chapter 5, as you might recall, uh, the way that we are understanding these sections is that Paul has really been talking about one primary doctrine, and that's the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he has spent chapters 3, 4, and 5 really helping us to understand that cardinal truth of the Christian faith. Um, in chapter 6, he takes a bit of a, a pause to deal with um, two questions that arise. One question relating to the role of um, grace in our lives, since we are no longer under the reign of sin and death as we see at the end of chapter 5, but we are now under this reign of grace. The question is, can grace be uh, used in the way that the antinomian would suggest, which is to say, um, let's just sin as much as we can because we have grace to cover our sins. And that will only put on display the grace of God. And Paul takes great pains to show that that is a, a foolish argument, an argument that only an unbeliever would make. Paul has said, look, in chapter 6, holiness is the mark of the child of God who has been justified. 
All who have been justified truly will evidence it by a holy life, a pattern of holy living. That's what chapter 6 is all about. We've died to sin in this sense. We've died to the power of sin. Sin is no longer master over us. We have a new master. He says in chapter 6, verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you anymore. That's a statement of fact for the Christian. For you are not under law, but under grace. And then in chapter 7, he hasn't forgotten that he raised the question of the law earlier, as early as chapter 3, verse 20. And we're going to look at that a bit this morning, um, actually quite a bit this morning. But chapter 7 is a transition from the idea of holiness to the idea of freedom. Freedom. This is all the salvation package that we have in Christ. We've been justified. All who are justified are of necessity sanctified. We are made holy in practice. And we must understand that we have freedom as part of our salvation as well. What is this freedom? Well, it's a freedom from the law, which sounds provocative. And so Paul is taking time to address what he means by that in chapter 7. This chapter is about Christian liberty with regard to the law. And really, we saw in the first four verses two weeks ago, Paul makes an argument uh, of law to show that all who are living are under law. Everyone understands something of what it means to be under law, whether you are a Jew who knows the written law of God or whether you are a Roman citizen living in the empire of Rome at the time that this was written. Everyone knows something of law. And the rule of law is this. It has control, dominion, authority over a man as long as he lives. But if that party dies, the law no longer has control over him. And so he gives an example of marriage. And he says, look, a husband and a wife are bound together. But, well, and if while they're bound, the woman marries another man, she will be called an adulteress, and rightly so. She has broken the law of marriage that binds her to her husband in fidelity. But then this interesting point in verse 3. If her husband dies, she's free from that law. In what sense? So that she is no longer an adulteress, though she has, been married, an- though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you have become dead to the law. How? Through the body of of Christ, through our death with Christ, which we saw back in chapter 6, verse 6. We have been crucified with Christ, and in that way we have been released from the law, the law that bound us to our former love, which was sin, and has, in God's grace, allowed us to be remarried to a new husband who has taken us to be his bride, and that is none other than the risen Lord Jesus Christ in order that we would bear fruit to God. And here's the implication of this whole argument of marriage. We are lawfully allowed to be remarried to Christ, and we are no longer adulteresses. In what sense? In this sense, spiritual adultery, walking away from God as all in Adam have done, and put their hope and trust in any other idol, namely themselves. We are no longer condemned by the law as an adulteress because we have been married to Christ. What has Christ done for us? He's taken all our, all our sins upon Himself at that cross at Calvary and He's paid them to the full. 
Therefore, the law has no power to condemn us any longer. That's his argument in the first four verses of chapter 7. We are now married to Christ, and as such, we are enabled to raise up fruit to God. Our children are now the fruits of the Spirit, a character that He is developing in us to be more like Christ and less like ourselves. And then in verse 5 and 6 last week, we took the time to really look at this idea of what it means to be in the flesh. In verse 5, Paul says, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law or stirred up by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. And we saw that to be in the flesh is to be in the domain of the flesh, in the realm of the flesh. Flesh is used in in a few different ways in the Scripture, and we went through that um, last time. But the key for this section of what Paul is helping us to understand is this. We were in the flesh. We were in the domain of the flesh entirely without the Spirit of God in our hearts and in our lives indwelling us. And as such, the sinful passions that were in us were stirred up constantly. How? By the law to work, to be energized in our members. And again, our members refers to every component of who we are. Not just our physical bodies, but our faculties, our powers of thinking, our emotion, our wills. All of that has been infected with the sinful passion, strong desire for evil that the law only arouses. It stirs up in order to do what? To bear fruit to death continually. That, in fact, that's all we could do. That's just another way of saying we were slaves of sin, right? We had no choice but to sin when we were in the flesh. But now, here's the contrast in verse 6. You're no longer in the flesh. But now we have been delivered from the law. That means released. Released from what? From its power to condemn. Having died to what we were held by. And we we understood that that word held by means held down by. The law held us down. There, There was no way for us to ascend to heaven on our own because every time we tried to do quote unquote good works, the law only stirred up sinful passions within us to produce fruit to death. And so the law continually held us down. There is no way to ascend the ladder to heaven in the realm of the flesh. There is no salvation anywhere in this realm. Salvation must be revealed from where? From heaven. We must be born again. That's the language of Jesus in John 3 with Nicodemus. We must be transferred from this realm in the flesh to the realm of glory, of heaven, where the Scripture says we are now seated with Christ, reigning with Him. Amazing thought. True thought. We spiritually have been reborn from above. We are in the realm of the Spirit now. And to prove it, the Lord has sent the seal of His Spirit into our lives that we might be able to bear fruit to God, to walk in holiness, to look more like Him. So verse 6 is really the anchor verse. As you are reading through chapter 7 and chapter 8, come back to this verse of chapter 7, verse 6. It's the anchor verse. But now, this is what is true of every one of you who are in Christ. We have been delivered from the 
law, from its penalty, from its power. We have died with Christ so that we are no longer held down by it. In fact, we've been transferred out from under its suppression into the heavenlies where we are with Christ and He in us. And then he says this phrase at the end of verse 6, so that we should serve, literally slave, bond slave is the idea. It's given as a verb, an action, that we should slave in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Hmm. And we looked at something of what that means. In fact, that idea is really expanded throughout the rest of chapter 7 and chapter 8. What it means to serve in the oldness of the letter, the rest of chapter 7. What it means to serve in the newness of the Spirit is chapter 8. So that's why I say this is the anchor verse. Now, there's only so much we can do on a Sunday. So last week, um, by God's grace, we did what we could. And this week, I want to just continue a little bit more with a little bit of overlap on verse 6 because there's another idea that I want to bring out here. And then we'll move into verse 7, Lord willing. This idea is the, this of being held down. Held by or held down by. What else does it mean to be held down? Or maybe another way of asking the question is, where were we held down by the law? Where is it that we needed this release from the law? Um, Sometimes it can be difficult if you talk in the abstract or conceptually about an idea, but there are some specifics in Scripture, I think, that would help us in this respect. If you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. We'll come back to Romans 7 in just a moment. Let's look at Hebrews 9, starting in verse 6. Now, when these things had thus been prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself. And for the people's sins committed in ignorance. Um, And some versions don't have that last phrase. Just for the people's sins. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic. What was? The first tabernacle. The physical place where the priests would offer sacrifice. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. So the writer to the Hebrews is calling out this idea of the conscience and that the physical tabernacle and the ceremonies that accompanied it were not able to perform a cleansing or a perfecting to the conscience. It didn't touch the conscience at all. All of the ceremony of the first tabernacle was an external, a physical ceremony. Look at verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. What is this tabernacle he speaks of? This is the body of Christ. Remember, he dwelt among us in John chapter 1. He tabernacled among us. Christ is the true tabernacle, not made with hands. 
Verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He was not like the high priest who only went in once a year to offer atonement for all of Israel. Christ offered a sacrifice once for all time, never needed to be repeated because he is the true high priest. For if, verse 13, blood, the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the, notice this, the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So the writer of Hebrews is drawing a critical distinction that we must understand between the effectiveness of the first tabernacle, the earthly ministry, in terms of cleansing the people of their sins. And his answer is, it only cleansed ritually, um, symbolically, for the purifying of the externals, the flesh, the outward part of you. But it had no effect on the internal part of you, that is to say, your conscience. Your conscience, which was stained with dead works. What is that? A knowledge of guilt because you have violated God's word. You've broken his law countless times. And no amount of physical washing by ritual can cleanse you there. Only the blood of Christ, trusting in his completed work in your behalf, is able to cleanse your conscience from those dead works in order to serve the living God. Or you could say it this way in the, Romans, the language of Romans 7, to bear fruit to God. So what is this suppression or where were we held down by the law? In the conscience. We were with dead works, with guilt in our consciences and unable to serve the living God. I think that's exactly why we have the account of people like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and who had said, what do I need to do for eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. And he says, all the commandments I have kept from my youth up. Oh, really? Then why are you here talking to me? If you have confidence that you've kept the law, you've been fastidious as a Jew, you've sacrificed as needed, shouldn't that suffice for a cleansed conscience? You wouldn't have any need of being here. No, but he wasn't clean in his conscience. And neither was the lawyer in Luke 10 who came to the Lord Jesus and said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And we have the same kind of a conversation. A lack of cleansing in the conscience. A nagging feeling that I haven't done enough for God and I'm still guilty. Or Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus who was a Pharisee, who was a ruler of the Jews, who was the teacher of Israel, and he comes to Jesus for a private meeting at night and says, Teacher, we know that you are rabbi. We know you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these works that you do except God is with him. What's the implicit question that he didn't ask? How can I be saved? Who are you, truly? You're not a mere man. Only the blood of Christ can cleanse the conscience from dead works to serve. Hebrews chapter 10, look with me at chapter 10 verse 1. For the law, 
having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more conscience or consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. And now go to verse 19 of that same chapter. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, not the physical curtain of the first tabernacle, but through his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, all of the house of God, at all times, of all times. Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Brothers and sisters, this is a work of the Spirit of God. He must cleanse us from within, in the conscience, so that our guilt is removed and we are able for the first time to serve Him in spirit and in truth by the Spirit of God. So this idea back in Romans 7 of serving or slaving in the newness of the Spirit versus in the oldness of the letter. Everyone's slaves. Everyone is a slave, and there's only two masters. The question is, who is your master? And the answer to that question is always, who's the one you obey as the pattern of your life? It's either sin or it's righteousness. It's either sin or it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who slave in newness of spirit are those who are born of the spirit, who are no longer in the flesh, who now have the word, the law, When you hear about the law of God, we're talking about the Word of God, not just the Ten Commandments. This all is the law of God. This law is now in our minds. How? God has put it there. He's written it on our hearts so that we should understand its true meaning, its spiritual meaning, and be able to keep it for the first time by the power of His Spirit. That's where He's going in chapter 8, verse 4. Now, Get to verse 7 here. And just by way of reminder, in terms of how this chapter is divided, in chapter 7, the first six verses are dealing with our relationship to the law. What's the Christian's relationship to the law? And we've answered that question already. Our relationship to the law is that we're free from its condemnation. The next set of verses, verses 7 to 12, which we're going to be starting today, deal with the question, what has the law power to do? What is its power? And then in verses 13 to 25, what the law does not have power to do. And the answer there is to save. It cannot save. So let's look today at what the law's power is, what power it has in verses 7 to 12. And we're just going to focus on verse 7 for today as we begin to build our understanding here. Paul says this in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. The big idea that I want you to keep in your minds for today is this. The power that the law has is the power to make sin abound. To make sin increase. 
And that's really the language of verse 20 of chapter 5. Paul made this comment, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, that it might proliferate sin. And there's two different senses in which that's true, which I want to show you today. So when he says, what shall we say? Is the law sin? There's a reasonable question that's being asked here. I mean, if the law stirs up sin, like we saw in verse 5, which really only results in bearing fruit to death, that sounds like the law plays a bad role. The law just amplifies sin. How can that be good? So Paul is addressing the question, is the law sin? And his answer is, the strongest form of may it never be that one can say in the Greek, he uses it over and over again. He uses it twice in chapter 3, three times, in fact, in chapter 3, and twice in chapter 6. God forbid. Look, just because our sin flares up in response to the law, which is good, righteous, good, holy, as he's going to say, that doesn't make the law bad. That just shows that we have a problem in our hearts. It exposes us for who we are. He says, on the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. Now, I want you to notice here that he changes the focus in the pronoun used from we to I. So, Paul here is now going to give us his personal experience. His personal experience with sin and law. The Greek literally says this, but sin I did not know, but through law. In other words, the law is what gave me knowledge of sin. That might sound like a strange thing to, for a Jew like Paul. And Paul, not just any Jew, but a Pharisee, a separated one, one who, was, uh, one who practiced righteousness, one who was raised, uh, who studied at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel, who was a, a Pharisee himself and the teacher of the law in Israel, respected by all people. Paul was trained by him in the law. We're told in Acts 22 that Paul was taught according to the strictness of the law and was zealous toward God. He knew the law very well from a human point of view. So when he uses this term, know, when he says, I would not have known sin except through the law, he does not merely mean that he didn't have awareness of the law. That's not the sense of this word, know. This word know is the Greek word yinosko, which has the idea of precise knowledge, intimate knowledge. In fact, this is the word that is used of a man having intimate knowledge of his wife in, that, in the marriage relationship. Very intimate knowledge. In other words, sin's true nature is what he came to know. He's saying, I would not have known sin intimately in himself, but by the law. Well, how does the law make sin abound here? Well, the law stirs up a deep awareness of sin, is what Paul is saying. A deep awareness. It, it amplifies sin in this sense to the conscience. It makes him very aware of the true nature of sin, and it overwhelms him. I would not have known sin except through the law. And what's interesting here also, as I was studying, is just this, the phrases that are used are the same in verse 5 and verse 7 when he says, through the law or by the law. Look back at verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were by the law. And then here in verse 
7, he's saying, I would not have known sin except by the law. It's the same phrasing, and I think that's significant. He's saying, look, the law seems to have two different functions depending on the nature of the person. Look at verse 5. When we were in the flesh, that's a reference to not being saved, unregenerate, without the Spirit, the sinful passions which were stirred up by the law were at work, were energized in our members to bear fruit to death. That was the outcome for the Paul who was in the flesh and for all of us who, are, who were in the flesh. The way that sin was stirred by the law resulted in fruit to death. But look at this difference here in verse 7. I would not have known sin except through the law. It's very interesting. The same law seems to have two different effects depending on the nature of the person. The same son has been, this has been said, this is not my idea. The same son melts the wax and hardens the clay. What makes the difference? The son is the same. But the nature of the object upon which the son is acting makes the difference. Those who are in the flesh have one result. The law aggravates and stirs up sin within them so that they only bear fruit to death. But in the one who is in the spirit, no longer in the flesh, the law is stirred up in this way. It raises awareness in my consciousness of how bad sin is in me. So law to the person who is in the flesh is really a condemning force. Paul's going to call the law the law of sin and death in, in chapter 8, verse 2. It stirs us up and makes us want to rebel even more. And what we have to understand is sin is a process. Sin is a process. We're going to look at this next week, Lord willing. But just for now, suffice it to say that when we were dominated by sin and our sinful passions were energized within us by the law, it only resulted in that final outcome of death. There was no other option. It started as a lust in the heart and it always ended up as a death in the eyes of God, a corruption of soul. And Paul is saying, that's not the case anymore for the one who is in the Spirit. For the one who is in the Spirit, the law is actually helping him. It's helping him to see his true self. And that is going to have a critical component, which we're going to see in salvation, in bringing him to Christ. No, the sinner does not perceive his aroused sinfulness until the Holy Spirit moves on his heart. He can't see it. Um, Paul sees it because he's speaking retrospectively as a saved person in Romans chapter 7. He's looking back on his experience in the flesh. That's so important as you read through chapter 7 because people get confused. Is Paul talking about an unsaved person or a saved person? He's writing from the perspective of a saved man remembering what it was like to be in the flesh before he was saved. And the working of the Holy Spirit on his heart as he was being drawn to Christ, which I hope to show you today, is all part of the work of salvation. Until he gets to the point where he stands and he says, look, I can see clearly what was happening now. Before we are able to see ourselves clearly, we justify ourselves, don't we? And Paul did this. We all do this. We, we judge ourselves horizontally. We say, look, I'm not as bad as that other person. I may not be the best person in the world, but I'm certainly not as bad as those people. Wrong standard. We're not measuring ourselves vertically by God's standard of perfection. We're measure, measuring ourselves by the standard of men. 
That's exactly the attitude we saw of the Pharisee in Luke 18, where he said, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not uh, unjust. I'm not an adulterer. Or I'm not even like this tax collector. This guy is like the worst. No. He points to his goodness. He's looking to his own righteousness. But what does Romans chapter 8, verse 7 say? Because the carnal mind, again, that word carnal from last week is the same word fleshly. This is to be in the flesh. The fleshly or the carnal mind is hatred, enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So we've got two different mindsets. One for the person who's in the flesh, one for the person who's in the spirit, and the law is having two different effects, even though the law really does the same thing. It's stirring sin, it arouses it, but the final effect is different because the nature of the person receives it differently. So Paul is saying, I would not have known sin except through the law. And then he gives this specific example. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Now, in reading the English, you don't pick up that when he says known here, he's using a different word than the one he used in the previous phrase. I would not have known sin except by the law. Here he says, I would not have known covetousness, but this word means to perceive with the senses. It means to discover for the first time and to really look into. He's pointing to a time in his past when he came to discover covetousness with his senses for the first time. It's very interesting because here we have somebody who thought he knew the law for his whole life, but then something happens and it becomes clear to him he never really understood the law at all. He missed the whole point, but now he understands it. Look at verse 9. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. That's the decisive moment when the law came to him in power to reveal the true nature of sin in him. He hadn't seen it before, even though he, quote unquote, knew the law. But now for the first time, he was able to perceive the law with spiritual senses, to understand its real meaning. And he says this, I would not have known, perceived, with the senses, discovered covetousness, epithemia, strong craving for what is forbidden. It translates as lust. Lust, a strong desire for the forbidden. I would not have known that, that strong lust and desire for what is forbidden unless the law had said, you will not covet. What is that? That's the 10th commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. You will not have a strong desire for what is forbidden. Your neighbor's house, his wife, male servants, female servants, animals, they're all off limits to you. Don't crave them and desire them as your own because you're dissatisfied with what you have from God's perspective. It's the 10th commandment. Would, would Paul have known the 10th commandment? Absolutely. And there's many examples of coveting that Paul would have known from the Scripture, from the Old Testament. I mean, starting in the garden. Adam and Eve. What about 
Genesis 3.6, so the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. So she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So there was a strong desire through the eyes for this fruit, for this forbidden fruit that both she and her husband must have had. Achan, in Joshua chapter 7, after the battle at Ai, we read that he coveted some items, this Babylonian garment. He coveted uh, money, silver and gold. What God called the accursed thing, he coveted. He had a strong desire for those things. David, when he was on his porch and he looked out and saw Bathsheba bathing, he coveted her through the eyes again. Jesus, when we get to the New Testament in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, he explains that coveting another man's wife in your heart is tantamount to, is the same as committing the physical act of adultery with her in God's eyes. Sinners view their thought life as private, don't they? It's a garden that's walled. No one is allowed to come in. I, I'm allowed to think what I want to think in my thoughts. And the thought often is, well, as long as I don't act on these thoughts, I'm okay. That was exactly what the Jew's idea was of keeping the law. As long as I don't act on my thoughts, my uh, cravings, I haven't broken any law. But does God see as man sees? No. God looks upon the heart, and He sees all of this as activity, as deeds, as works that are taking place even before they've come out of your mouth or your actions, where they stir in the heart. That's where the Lord sees, and that was what Christ was calling attention to. You've missed the point of the law. The law is not just some external code to be followed. The law has a spiritual understanding, and there's a spirit of the law that you're entirely missing if you think you haven't committed adultery because you have. You have by looking at another woman with lust, and you have by worshiping idols apart from the Lord God. That's spiritual adultery. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul lists coveting in the same class as fornication. Fornication referring to sexual impurity of all kinds. The same class. And he says, but fornication and all uncleanness, Ephesians 5.3, or covetousness, strong desire, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. That's interesting. The attitude is right there with the action in God's mind. That's why covetousness is listed in Colossians as one of those sins that we must put to death in the flesh. We must put those, uh, those deeds to death. He says, therefore, to put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication. Again, the idea of sexual immorality. But look at this, uncleanness, passion, that's covetousness, evil desire, and greediness, which is idolatry. Colossians 3.5. Those are attitudes of the heart he's identifying. Pay attention to the attitudes of your heart, is what the Scripture says. Here's a good summary from John, the Apostle John, that we read this morning in our call to worship. 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust, strong desire of the flesh, the strong desire of the eyes, and the pride of life, this idea of despising God's word and looking to myself, 
for sufficiency, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Coveting, brothers and sisters, is loving the world and its possessions more than loving God. That's why it's such an offense. It displaces God from his throne in our minds, in our hearts. Coveting in the heart is not just a craving for what is forbidden. It is idolatry in God's mind. It is sexual immorality. It is uncleanness. It is fundamentally a worship problem. That's what he's saying. It's loving oneself more than loving God. And for those who are in the flesh, guess what? That's the pattern of their lives. They are covetous as a pattern of life. They love the world and everything it has to offer because it satisfies the lust of their flesh. But God is saying, this is not so for those who are in the Spirit. Yes, we can fall into that trap, but we feel conviction over that. We repent by God's grace. We don't live in that any longer. So, clearly, Paul is referencing the Tenth Commandment when he says, you shall not covet. But the law had said that all along. And so the question that has to come to the mind is, why did Paul not perceive covetousness for what it was all along? And here's what we have to understand. As I alluded to a little while ago, the ethnic Jews, the Jews who were not believing, who didn't put their faith in the Messiah who was to come, and really, just like all of us who are unbelieving from any people group, they are operating in the oldness of the letter. They are um, looking at the law of God, and they are seeing it only as external commands to be complied with externally. They're missing the entire spirit of the law. Their interpretation of keeping the law is what I do and I don't do, and those are external actions, not attitudes of the heart. Um, in fact, when Paul lived, at the time he lived, the Jews had a system in place for categorizing and systematizing all of God's commandments into 613 distinct commands in order to manage them. This was their system to manage God's law in the way that they thought they could. 248 of those were positive precepts. Here are the things you must do. And 365 of them were negative prohibitions. These are the things you must not do. And those things corresponded to uh, components of the body. The 248 were supposed to correspond to the number of bones and organs cumulatively in the human body. The 365 corresponded to sinews in the body. I'm not sure how they arrived at that understanding, but they, also to the idea of solar days in a year. And the idea was, was this for the Jews. As long as we, just as we take care of our bodies carefully, our organs, our sinews, so we need to do with our spiritual bodies in keeping the law of God. Uh, and in the mind of the Jew, these, these precepts and deeds of the law were just physical acts. Listen to how Paul speaks of his life before his conversion in Philippians chapter 3. He says this in verses 4 through 6, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I am more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul felt he was blameless in the law. But what is the sin the Tenth Commandment is prohibiting? Is it prohibiting an external action of some kind, or is it prohibiting wrong attitudes of the heart? 
See, the Jews should have known that if commandment number 10 was dealing with an attitude of the heart, then the other nine commandments also had a spiritual attitudinal component to them as well. But they missed that. You remember the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. The law God always intended to be in the heart of man, not just externally in the mind, which is depraved because of sin. When the lawyer asked Jesus the greatest commandment in the law, he repeated the same thing. Jesus said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. All three things, in other words, all of you, not just the mind, but with the heart and with the soul as well. That is where the disconnect was. And so that was the case with Paul before he was converted. So now Paul is saying, look, I never realized that coveting from the heart was sin. I was just thinking it was the external actions that were sin. The Lord has shown me by his law that actually the attitudes of the heart can be sin as well. I think that's the first thing that he means with this statement. It exposed the attitude of coveting as sin in him. But I think there's something else here too which is very interesting. When he wrote, unless the law had said you shall not covet. Again, when you read it in the English, that word said sounds like a past tense action, something that happened one time in the past. The law said this. But actually, he uses the imperfect tense there. And the imperfect tense refers to um, continual or repeated action. So hear what Paul is actually saying here. He's saying, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law kept on saying, do not covet. That's actually the sense of what he's saying. The law kept on saying to him, do not covet. It's a different sense of the phrase, isn't it? In the one case, you have the understanding would be, the law just said this to me one time. But Paul is saying, no, the law kept repeating to me over and over and over, you shall not covet, and it would not leave him alone. Remember when Paul was on his Damascus Road uh, conversion experience, and the Lord blinded him with a light that was greater than the noonday sun, knocked him and his company off their animals, presumably off their animals, onto the ground, and the Lord Jesus Christ reveals himself to Paul. There was a voice from heaven Saul, Saul, why are you, who are you, Lord, was the answer. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you persecute. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. It's an expression that we kind of just read and look past really quickly. What does that mean? You're kicking against the pricks, Paul. You're moving in a direction to persecute my people, my body, the church. But there's something going on in you that's not leaving you alone, that's disturbing your conscience. You will not covet. You will not covet. And perhaps other laws as well that he was realizing he had broken tremendously. Look back at Romans 2 with me just for a moment. Romans chapter 2, um, about this idea of the conscience. 
in verse 15. Actually, in verse 14, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Um, This is about the Gentiles in particular who don't have the law. Paul is saying, look, the, law, the work of the law is written on the heart of every man. He has um, the witness of the law in him so that when he violates the law, his conscience, his alarm system sounds and tells him, you've crossed the line, you're out of bounds, you've sinned. And what can happen with that conscience is it can be seared. It can become dulled over time like nerves that are frayed so that it doesn't sound as loudly anymore. How? By ignoring the conscience, by continually sinning repeatedly again and again and again. It becomes seared and you don't hear it anymore. But what's happening here is the, the law is speaking to Paul repeatedly and presumably loudly. It's overriding his alarm system that may be seared and saying, Paul, you have sinned. You are sinful in your nature. I think that's exactly what's happening with Paul in his pre-conversion experience, if you will, or his, his, his journey to understanding who he really is in order that he would cry out for salvation. Th- this is the irresistible call that we talk about in the Reformed faith, this call of the Lord that goes beyond what the voice of a man can do. The voice of a man can only reach the outside ear of another person. But the call of the Lord can reach the heart. It does reach the heart. It's powerful. His word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It's able to pierce to the very soul of who you are, to separate bone and marrow. I mean, the most intimate part of you, that's the power of the word. We put a quote in the bulletin this morning about the power of the word from our brother R.C. Sproul. I think the greatest weakness in the church today is that almost no one believes that God invests his power in the Bible. Everyone is looking for power in a program, in a technique, in anything and everything except where God has placed his word. The word, the law of God has tremendous power, brothers and sisters. That's what Paul is saying here. The the word, the law arrested me. Now, what I find really fascinating about this and and really what helps with the whole understanding of this picture of salvation and is Paul writing from a a saved or an unsaved perspective in Romans 7 is if we look at the golden chain of salvation in Romans 8. We're going to get there with a lot of and go through it with detail, but just for now, look at Romans 8 with me. I think this really helps understand what is going on in the background. In Romans 8, we have what theologians call the golden chain of salvation in verses 29 and 30. It says, For whom he foreknew, referring to God, God setting his love upon a people, for whom he foreknew, this is in eternity, before there was time or, or matter, anything, he also predestined, he marked them out to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's another way of saying salvation, saved, sanctified that he, Christ, might be the firstborn, the preeminent one among many brethren, these loved ones that God foreknew. Now look at this. Moreover, verse 30, whom he predestined, these he also called. That's the irresistible call that we're talking about here. 
This irresistible call now happens in space and time. What God had planned in eternity, he brings to pass in space and time through an effectual, irresistible call upon the heart of each one of us. And whom he called, these he also justified. What's that a reference to? Faith. Believing, because we know that it's by faith that we are justified. That was the whole argument about Abraham. He believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So what's happening here, I think, in Romans 7 is Paul is thinking back to this time before he believed, before he looked to Christ and saw his deliverance there. But it was all part of this effectual calling, which is part of the chain of salvation that's linked together and of necessity runs from one length to the next. So Paul was being wooed and drawn by the Spirit of God. This is part of the salvation work of the Spirit in his life to bring him to a place where he would understand, I am desperate for salvation because of how how dirty I am, how, how foul I am in God's sight. The Lord's voice will not be silenced when he calls you to salvation, brothers and sisters. It will not be silenced. He will give you a profound, profound conviction of your own sinfulness, and that just continues to grow in your Christian life as you walk with him. Um, You might think about that testimony of Samuel, the prophet, when the Lord was calling him for the first time. Samuel, Samuel. The Lord was repeating himself three times, and Samuel went to Eli each time because he thought Eli was calling him, the priest. Eli said, I'm not calling you. Go back to bed. But after the third time, he said, I perceive that the Lord is calling you, Samuel. When he calls you the next time, say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. See, the Lord speaks. He knows how to get our attention in the heart, in the ear of the heart where no one else can reach. That is what Paul is saying was happening when he said, the law had said repeatedly, you shall not covet. So, What's Paul saying in Romans 7, or Romans 7, verse 7 here? He's saying, look, the law is not sin at all. The law is good. The law is good because it makes sin to abound. In the unregenerate person, the person who's in the flesh, it shows God how sinful that man is because he just, the man just keeps wanting to sin in rebellion against God again and again and again. But in the one whom God is calling to himself, God is using this law to expose the darkness within him and make it um, available to his own senses spiritually to, to understand, to his awareness of how sinful he really is. So you could say it this way if you were to summarize this idea. This was helpful to me. In the flesh, we suppress. We suppress the truth of God. The law comes to us. It convicts, but we suppress. Right? Paul dealt with that in chapter 1. All the unrighteous and ungodly, God has an issue with. He has wrath upon because they are suppressing the truth in their ungodliness. That's our reaction in the flesh to truth. The law comes and we suppress, but in the spirit, we confess our sin. In the flesh, we suppress. In the spirit, we confess our sin. We, We say the same thing back to God that he says of us. You're guilty, and we say, yes, Lord, I am. Have mercy on me. Forgive me. You say, how do you know that Paul was suppressing or confessing? It doesn't say any of that in verse 7. Well, like I say, in chapter 1, that is the pattern 
of all men who are ungodly. They suppress the truth. But what about the confession part? Where is that going to come for Paul in his conversion experience? Romans 7, 24. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? There's his confession of utter sinfulness. Who's going to deliver me? I'm filthy. And I love that immediately his attention is turned toward the Lord in verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the answer. That's where the Lord is going to bring him with this function, this law work that he's doing. But first he has to create desperation in Paul and he has to create desperation in all of us. Who of us is going to come to a doctor for medicine to heal a disease that we don't understand that we have? You have to be convinced in yourself that you are terminally ill in order to take radical measures to heal. That's exactly what the Spirit of God does in His people. Very encouraging. Hmm. So is the law sin? No. The law plays a very, very good role in bringing His people to Christ. But first comes the pain of deep conviction. This is who you are in God's sight apart from Christ, apart from grace. Jonathan Edwards, the famous preacher of the First Great Awakening in the colonies, in Massachusetts in particular, during the 1730s, he made some very insightful observations about the revival that he saw taking place in his congregation, in individuals' lives that he was shepherding, as well as among the revival in general. And there were multiple revivals that were happening in the colonies at, at those times. Here's what he says, Jonathan Edwards, regarding this revival. Quote, when awakenings first begin, he's talking about when people first begin to see their own sin by the work of the law and the Spirit. When awakenings first begin, their consciences are commonly most exercised about their outward vicious course or other acts of sin. They see the big boulders, so to speak, in their lives, the external sins that they were doing and they're convicted about that first. But afterwards are much more burdened with a sense of heart sins, that dreadful corruption of their nature, their enmity, hatred against God, the pride of their hearts, their unbelief, their rejection of Christ, the stubbornness and obstinacy of their wills, and the like. End quote. You see, Edwards was very familiar with this law work in the hearts of people because he saw people recognize their own sinfulness first in a very broad external way but then later how polluted they were internally and it drove them to desperation for salvation. That's always the case in the revival of the soul and in revivals at large with many souls and an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in a particular time. So friends, my question for you this morning is have you come to see your sin in this way? Are you convicted about your internal sin and the attitudes of your hearts? Or are you primarily concerned with the externals, the behaviors that you do or don't do? Does it grieve you when you sin? Do do you see that your sin is primarily first and foremost against God and not against anyone else? Do you suppress that knowledge when it comes to you? Or do you confess to the Lord? That tells you a lot about your spiritual condition. That tells you if you're someone who's still in the flesh, your response will be to suppress. Even if you do feel some conviction, 
The Spirit still has His work of stirring up sin in us. But the question is, how do we respond to that as the pattern of our lives? Are we suppressing or are we confessing? Psalm 19 was read this morning as our corporate reading. And Psalm 19, as we were looking um, in our men's group a couple of weeks ago, has a really wonderful transition point um, from verses uh, in, in verses 5 and 6 to verse 7. In Psalm 19, David tells us that the word of the Lord goes out to the, uh, the, the heavens, declare the glory of the Lord. That God has created all things for his glory. He has created, he's spoken them into being out of nothing, and what happens is all creation speaks back to him, his glory. It can be heard in all of creation. Day-to-day utters speech, night-to-night reveals knowledge. The knowledge of the glory of God is heard across all languages because creation is screaming the glory of God. And then he says, very interestingly, in verse 5, he says, or the end of verse 4, in them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end. He's picturing the sun rising in the east and traveling across the sky in a circuit. And as the sun reaches its apex, it gives light to everything underneath it. It exposes everything on the earth. And he's saying in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And you say, what's the connection between the sun rising, exposing the earth with its light and heat, and the conversion of the soul? Well, the, the connection is, The law of God, the Word of God is like that sunshine that rises in our hearts and exposes all the darkness that's there. It shows us for who we really are and is able because it is powerful to convert the soul. Nothing is hidden from its rays of light and truth. You see, God knows how to convert the soul just like He knows how to warm the earth with the sun. And it is by this sunshine in our heart, this word of God, that we are brought to the place of verse 14 where we can say, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. That's sanctification. Help me to line, align my life, my will, my actions, all of me with you, Lord, and what you approve of. Hmm. So the question is, does he do that for everybody? Well, No. Not everybody has the same response to the Word. That exposure of the soul to the light of the Lord in such a way that He converts the soul is a total grace. What do we deserve? We deserve judgment and death for our sin. That is the right punishment for our sins. God is perfectly just and right and good for doing that. But thank God that's not all His glory. His glory includes that He is also merciful. He's a Savior. He delights in loving kindness and compassion. He's pitiful to his children, merciful as a father is with his children. And so he creates that desperation in us through the light of his law so that we would cry out for deliverance. And he points us to deliverance in his solution, in his only solution for salvation, which is his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is salvation in no other, for there is no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. Christ is the only way to be saved. 
If you're not trusting in Him alone this morning, repent and put all your trust in Him and no confidence in your flesh. Hmm. That's why Paul is going to say in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, to those who have seen their great desperation from their own sin and taken refuge in Christ. They're in him now. They're sheltering in him from the wrath of God which is going to be poured out on all the ungodly at the last day, the judgment. Have you taken refuge in Christ this morning? Rejoice in him. He has looked upon you with favor. He has drawn you to himself. This is part of your salvation package, this law work that continues in your life. The law is no longer against you. The law is for you. It's actually transforming you to be more like Christ. That law is melting you as wax because your nature has been changed to become a partaker of the nature of God. You're no longer in the flesh. You're in the Spirit. So walk in the Spirit as Christ is in the Spirit. Is the law sin? God forbid It's holy, it's just, and it's good. And there's a lot more to come on this next week, Lord willing. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word which is healing to our souls. Your word which exposes us for who we are outside of Christ and drives us as a schoolmaster, as a tutor to Christ where we find our refuge and our salvation in Him. Lord, We pray that you would have your perfect work in each one of our hearts for your glory and for your great name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.